Thank you to our music team. Appreciate you guys. At this time, the children, zero to three, can be dismissed to the nursery and four to seven to the children's ministry class. Let me ask the rest of you, if you would please open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter four. As we continue our study through the gospel according to Mark, we've been working our way through the parables that Jesus has been teaching to his disciples, the parable of the soils, and then thinking about then the parable of the lamp under the basket. We come to the end of Jesus' parables here in Mark chapter four, looking at chapter four, verses 26 to 34. Please follow along with me as I read Mark chapter four, verses 26 to 34. And he said, the kingdom of God, as is, as is if a man should scatter seed on the ground, he sleeps night and day, and the seed grows, and he knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the grain, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come now to the highest point of our time of worship, the time where we give our attention to your word, we have been speaking to you through prayer and song and to one another, but now, Lord, we pause, we ready our hearts, we make sure that we have good soil because it's time to hear from you. We pray, O God, that you would allow us to be good hearers. We pray that the seed of your word would fall on good soil. We ask that you would protect that soil and cultivate that soil. We pray, God, that if anyone is here and does not yet know you, that you would protect them from Satan snatching away the seed of the word. We pray, Lord, that as you are the only one who can give life, that you would grant them life. We pray, God, that for those of us whose life is defined and rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ, you would give us greater life, not so that we could spend it on ourselves, but so that we might enjoy you, so that we might bring you glory. We pray, God, that we would bear the type of fruit that you will for us to bear, that you desire for us to bear, the type of fruit that pleases you and proves that we are your disciples. Lord, as we have been thinking about Jesus' teaching and him specifically hiding things from those who were outside of the kingdom and yet explaining things clearly to those who are in the kingdom, We pray, Lord Jesus, by your spirit, you would take up that ministry yet again. We trust, Lord, that you are the ultimate sower of the seed. While you have given us a responsibility and a job to do to sow the seed of the gospel, we know that all our efforts are nothing if they're not met by the power of your spirit. And so we ask that you would help us. We pray, Lord, that you would demonstrate the power of your word in our hearts We pray that you would come upon this time in a a powerful way, in a way that demonstrates the truthfulness of this word, in a way that gives glory to the King of glory, the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe what you say, Lord, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we say, speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen. They say great things have small beginnings. That was certainly true when you look at the life and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. There were times, as we have already seen throughout the gospel according to Mark, where Jesus was surrounded by great crowds, so much so that he even had to get in a boat, go out onto the water so that he would not be crushed by the crowd and he would be able to teach the crowd in effective ways. 
There were times certainly in the life and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ when he was surrounded by great crowds, but really ultimately, as we have been moving through even Mark chapter four, we come back again and again in the account of Jesus's life to the reality that he was really only surrounded by the 12 and the other disciples, perhaps the number being 72 as we read in other gospel accounts. And of those 12 and of those 72, when it came to the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, the number grew or rather shrank significantly. When Jesus was arrested, every single one of the 12 ran away from the garden that night. Later that night, even Peter himself, a man who said he would never do such a thing, denied knowing Jesus three times. A small beginning, wouldn't you say? Yet we fast forward to the year 2022 and it's estimated by the Pew Research Center that there are something like 2.3 billion Christians all across the world today. Now certainly in those statistics, those numbers, they would count people that aren't actually Christians, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, etc. But the reality is there's a lot more than just a little less than 100 as there was in the days of Jesus' ministry. It may have started with less than 100 people, but Christianity has grown significantly since the days that Jesus came preaching that the time was fulfilled, that the kingdom of God was at hand, and that all must repent of their sins and believe in the gospel which he would preach. While sociologists and others have varying opinions regarding how and why Christianity has spread in such a way and the way that it has, the truth is that God gives us in his word the actual reason that Christianity has spread as it has. Acts chapter 6 verse 7 says, just after the first seven sort of prototypes of deacons were appointed so that the apostles would not be distracted from the ministry of the word and prayer. Acts chapter six, verse seven says, and the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. In Acts chapter 12, this very same theme shows up just after Herod attempts to steal the glory that belonged to God himself. Acts chapter 12, verses 22 to 24 says to us, and the people were shouting the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him, Herod, down because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last, but the word of God increased and multiplied. And then again in Acts chapter 19, this very same idea that the very answer for why Christianity has grown the way it has grown and will continue to grow the way that God determines that it will continue to grow. In Acts chapter 19, in order to explain the revival that broke out in the city of Ephesus, Luke writes this in chapter 19, verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. It wasn't just Luke that understood the way that Christianity would grow and the significance of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, a ministry that he would hand as a baton to his apostles who would then hand it on to the church Paul himself, as he explained to the Colossians this very same idea in Colossians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, explained to them that the gospel, just as it had done in Colossae, just as it had done in their very hearts, was bearing fruit and increasing all over the world, he says. So how do we explain going from something like less than 100 Christians in the days of the Lord Jesus Christ to then going to, on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 
Christians and then going to thousands more and then hundreds more and all the way down until the give or take 2.3 billion Christians that are around the world today. How do we explain that? We explain it the way the Bible explains it. That the kingdom of God, that Christianity itself, will grow by the word of God and the will of God. That the word of God will do the work of God according to the will of God. And that is why, that is the explanation for the growth of Christianity. While other religions may force by sword, though Christianity has its uh, wrong understandings in the Crusades, but while other religions may force people by sword to become a Muslim, for instance, other religions may promise a, a better life, a better family, belonging, like Mormonism, for instance. It is Christianity and Christianity alone that is built by the Word of God alone. We need no gimmicks. We need no popularity contests. The truth is we need no internet. We need no buildings. We need only the word of God. The word of God which God himself has made sure we would have in our hands. How does Christianity grow? This is the very thing that Jesus has to teach his disciples as he continues his instruction in Mark chapter 4. As he thinks about and teaches them about the kingdom of God, you'll remember that it was the kingdom of God that Jesus came preaching. The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. It's the kingdom of God that is the theme of the ministry of Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is the king of glory that Psalm 24 teaches us about. And so if you are the king who rules over the kingdom of God, it's only fitting then that your message is about that very kingdom. A kingdom that has broken in already to this fallen world, yet hides itself inside of the human heart but a kingdom that will one day break into this fallen world, first physically in the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then totally in the new heavens and the new earth. A kingdom that is taking over, a kingdom that is taking root, a kingdom that is changing lives, all by the power of the preached word. Jesus wanted his disciples to know then and Jesus wants his disciples to know now that the kingdom of God will grow by the word of God and the will of God. So as we approach these two parables then, I want to take this in a couple different parts. I think first of all, we've got some foundational teachings that Jesus lays out for us as we interpret the meaning of these two different parables they will give us the groundwork or the, the fertile soil to plant our roots in that create in us a right thinking about the kingdom of God and a right thinking about sowing the seed of the gospel. In other words, they will help us in our evangelistic efforts to make Jesus Christ and his gospel known. But then also as we sort of zoom out and take a look at some application, some ways in which, some, some particular ways in which these two lessons and these two parables are helpful for us, we then learn some practices that we will discover, practices that you likely already know, practices that you perhaps already do, but practices nonetheless that must be rooted deeply in the way that we do ministry as a church and as individual Christians who seek to be sowers of the very gospel of Jesus Christ. After all, there are a whole lot of different messages that you can take up, aren't there? There are a whole lot of different messages that you are bombarded by every moment of every day. But the reality is there is only one message that can save your soul. There is only one message that you must pay ultimate attention to. The message that King Jesus has come. He has paid for your sins. 
He has taken upon himself the sins of his people and therefore taken upon himself the wrath of his father, the just judge, against those sins. And three days later, he rose from the grave so that he could show to the world that he is who he says he is, that he could give justification to his people, that he could declare the people of God by faith in him innocent of all their wrongdoing. There's no greater message than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so as we see that message, as we know that message, we are to proclaim that message. We see it in the book of Acts. We see it throughout the the, uh, epistles. We see it throughout the history of the church. We see it throughout the world today. That where you find faithful Christians, you will find faithful witnesses. You will find faithful sowers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as we drop back into Mark chapter four, I would just remind you of one very important thing, the idea of the seed. We already know from the parable of the soils what the seed represents, don't we? Jesus says it represents the word. Most especially he's talking about the word that he was preaching, the gospel. The good news, the king has come, and the king will save all those who put their faith in him from the consequences of their sin, which is God's wrath against them. And yet we understand that even as the word is proclaimed, even as the seed represents the word, the gospel is traced all throughout the entirety of the Bible as it is designed to teach us that its culmination is in the word made flesh, Jesus Christ. And so as we think about sowing the seed of the word, we think about the responsibility. No, the privilege that the Christian has to say, my king has left good news for you. There's a savior and you can know him. We get to proclaim that very same message as faithful sowers of the gospel. So let's look at this then. First of all, I want us to see two lessons for the faithful sower. Two lessons for the faithful sower. These are the lessons that ground us in the fertile soil of doctrinal truth that Jesus Christ teaches us. In other words, if we don't have these lessons in place, you can use all the practices You can read all the practical books on evangelism that you want, but if you don't have the doctrine behind it, it will do nothing for you. So let's root our practices, let's root our lives as sowers of the gospel into these lessons regarding a faithful sower. The first lesson that Jesus gives to us is in the first parable, verses 26 to 29, and the the lesson for the faithful sower is this. The kingdom of God will grow automatically. The kingdom of God will grow automatically. I'll show you why I say that. It's not an excuse for couch potato Christians to do nothing, but it's actually a motivation for real Christians to get going. The kingdom of God will grow automatically. Beginning in verse 26, Jesus has another, a continuation of a parable to say to them, to teach to them, and we see it signaled once again with the words, and he said, the kingdom of God as if, as, as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. You notice we mentioned the kingdom of God in verse 30 as well. So we can understand that Jesus is shifting his teaching and focusing specifically and directly on the kingdom of God itself. The place under which the rule and reign of Jesus Christ is recognized and cherished and loved and he is worshiped as the true king. And so Jesus says, uh, let me compare the kingdom of God to something. It's as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. And immediately your mind goes back to the very beginning of Mark chapter four. You think about the parable of the sower and the seeds. And you start thinking about the four different types of soils that Jesus talked about. The path where the seed was taken away immediately. The rocky ground where the seed sprouted up, but it didn't last the difficulties of life. 
the thorny ground where the seed sprouted up but was then choked out by other cares. But then the good soil, the good soil that bore fruit to the glory of God. And so Jesus takes us right back to that very same man who's scattering seed on the ground. But he's got a different lesson to teach us this time. Verse 27 says, this man who sows seed, it says he sleeps and rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. Jesus is certainly not intending to mean that a farmer doesn't know the proper process of agriculture and horticulture and whatever other ultures there are involved in farming. He knows that the farmer knows, I throw the seed out, the seed does its thing, it grows. But what Jesus is highlighting here is that the activity of the farmer stops at the sowing of the seed. What the farmer can do, what the sower can do is limited to this. He throws it, he goes home, he sleeps. He wakes up, he goes about his normal business, he goes home, he sleeps. He wakes up, he goes about his normal business, he goes home, he sleeps. Meanwhile, that seed and that crop is doing something. Jesus doesn't mean to say that there's no necessary weeding process or perhaps even some type of fertilization. We can't push this too far. The parable is not intended to, to teach us every little thing about farming. But what the parable is intended to teach us is what verse 28 declares clearly. The earth produces by itself. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. The farmer sows, the earth does the rest. And that's Jesus' point. The word by itself is actually one Greek word. It's where we get our word automatic, hence the kingdom of God will grow automatically. Automate is the Greek word, and like I said, it's where we get our word automatic. So really, it could be said in verse 28, the earth produces automatically. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. Verse 29 says, but when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And so you see Jesus' point, don't you? He's teaching that the only responsibility that the sower of the seed has is to sow the seed and that's it. Sow the seed, sleep, let the earth do what God made it to do. And then, when it's time, enjoy the harvest. The kingdom of God will grow automatically. We'll come back to this a little bit more and we'll, we'll put some more meat on that. But the second lesson then that Jesus teaches us, the second lesson for the faithful sower comes in the next parable. And it is this, that the kingdom of God will grow Exponentially. The kingdom of God will grow exponentially. The kingdom of God will grow automatically and the kingdom of God will grow exponentially. Verse 30 continues, and he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Now stop there. We know today, and Jesus knew because he's the one that made every single seed, that the mustard seed is not actually the smallest seed on the earth. There are seeds that are so small, you need a microscope in order to see them. But you have to remember who Jesus was talking to. People who lived in those days, in that time, and they did not, believe it or not, have Google yet. They couldn't ask Siri, what's the smallest seed known to mankind? To their minds, what they knew the smallest seed was, was the mustard seed. And so we can't push the parable again too far. It's not as though Jesus is 
made a mistake here. Oops, the creator of the heavens and earth dropped the ball and forgot he made a seed smaller than the mustard seed. That's totally ridiculous. Jesus has to condescend to them to speak to what they can understand. And so he says, let's just take the smallest seed that you are aware of, perhaps, the mustard seed. And so he focuses on the smallness of the mustard seed. And then verse 32 says, Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches branches, so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. You see what Jesus is doing there? He's saying that when you compare the size of the mustard seed, the smallest seed that they were aware of, to the ultimate growth of the plant itself. Other gospels call it a mustard tree. There are mustard trees and mustard bushes. But when you compare it to the ultimate growth, max growth could be 10 to 20 feet high with with about as much as width as as it is high, 10 to 20 feet or so. And Jesus points out too, and I'm not sure that all our translations take it this way, but that this plant that he's talking about is a plant that's specifically in the garden. So it's not as though he's saying it's the tallest tree that you are aware of. They were aware of other tall trees, the cypress, for instance. But this was a garden plant, a plant that they would put in their gardens. It was the biggest garden plant that they were aware of. And so the point here is that when you put that tiny little seed in the ground, it grows up to be such a large plant that even the birds of the air can rest themselves in its shade. Jesus is talking about exponential growth here. It's kind of like when you start investing in an IRA and you think to yourself, my goal is to have a million dollars by the time I retire. And somehow I'm supposed to do that like $100 at a time. I don't see how it's going to happen. What do you do with that IRA? Do you hit the panic button as soon as the market takes another dive? No. You wait it out. Because you realize that when you start that at 18 years old, and if you invest in in something like a Roth IRA, then at 65 years old, depending on how much you have put in each month, you will actually accomplish your goal and perhaps even more than a million dollars by the time you retire. So get one soon. Learn from the rest of our mistakes. (laughs) And so this is what Jesus is talking about. It, It starts with a small beginning. You remember the size of the crowd that was with Jesus before he started to explain these parables? It was large. But then he told them a simple parable about farming, the parable of the soils. And it seems as though they were not impressed. Okay, I got that. I mean, I I know all about sowing seed. Let's go to lunch. This Jesus guy is not what we thought he was. But then there was a group of individuals that thought, okay, Jesus must have something deeper to teach here. And they go to him and they ask him. Their curiosity is piqued. Because that's what a real disciple, that's what happens to a real disciple. Huh. There's got to be something more that I'm, that I'm not catching. Jesus, can you help me explain? Can you help me understand this? Can you explain this to me? And so that group from, from a, a large crowd so big that he had to get in a boat to teach them down to this crowd that just sat around him was quite a significant shrink, wasn't it? Just down to a little mustard seed. But then as we think about the ultimate effect of the kingdom of God, the the exponential growth of the kingdom of God, we realize that as we read the end of the story, even as we saw it at the beginning of our service this morning and our call to worship, that when the Lord's kingdom finally comes, when he is finished building it, it will be comprised of a number of people from every tribe, tongue, and language And no human being will be able to count how many people are in his kingdom. That's the point that Jesus is making here. How encouraging would that have been to the folks in the city of Rome who were reading the Gospel of Mark? Who were being persecuted? Who were being set on fire to light Nero's gardens? 
who were being thrown to the lions and to the wild dogs in the Colosseum for the entertainment of the people who hated them? How encouraging would it have been for them to be remembered or to be reminded that Jesus said, listen, this is going to start small, but don't worry. I got this. I know what I'm doing. I'm in charge. I'm the king of glory. I will make it happen. You can trust me. How encouraging is it in the midst of all the social upheaval that we face in the world or even just in our own nation, even in our own state? As insanity sinks deeper and deeper into the minds of the lost, you can be whoever you want to be. What would you like to identify as today? What would you prefer that I call you today? We'll throw God out of the picture altogether. There's no objective truth. There's no standard of truth. You are truth. And whatever you want, that's what we'll go with. Friends, we need to understand that even in the light of that lunacy, God will build his kingdom. The church will prevail. Jesus Christ will save every person for whom he has atoned. We need not worry. Oh, sure, we work. We pray, we vote, we do whatever we can, but we don't worry. No anxiety should ever grip our hearts. No fear should ever come over us. God will do what he will do by the power of his word. And so the kingdom of God will grow automatically and the kingdom of God will grow exponentially and those are the two lessons for the faithful sower. That's the soil in which we grow our witness to the gospel. Let's move then to four practices of the faithful sower. Four practices of the faithful sower. If the lessons are the soil that we grow our witness in, then these practices are the fruit that is born from that fertile soil. First of all, as we circle back to the very beginning in verse, chapter, uh, verse 26, we see the first practice of the faithful sower, and it is this. We must be persistent to preach the word. We must be persistent to preach the word. Jesus says the kingdom of God, as is of is as if a man, that's a tongue twister, should scatter seed on the ground. What is the action? There are really two actions, but what is the action that the sower does in Jesus' parable? Sow seed and sleep. That's it. That's it. What is the seed representative of, according to Jesus? The word. The gospel. So what is it that the sower sows? The word. What is this a descriptor of? This is a descriptor of the ministry of every single Christian alive today. Preach the word. How do we make disciples? By preaching the word. How do we show people the truth? By pointing them to the word. How does God save people? I'm getting ahead of myself, but that's all right. By the power of the word. Just as the man scattered the seed, we sow the word of God. It's deeply encouraging and deeply motivating to understand that the only responsibility we have in this life when it comes to witnessing is to sow the seed of the word. Is it frightening sometimes? Perhaps. We all get a little bit nervous when it's time to share the gospel, when it's time to speak truth in a situation. But it's a great comfort to us to know that the results are not for you. They're determined by God. You preach and then you sleep. That's it. We must be persistent to preach the word. The second practice of the faithful sower is that we must be patient to see the effects of the word. In verse 27, we must be patient to see the effects of the word. 
Verse 27 says, he sleeps and rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. We sow the seed. We go to sleep. God grows the word in people's hearts. We don't know how. This is exactly how Jesus says it works with the Holy Spirit. He is like the wind that blows. You can't see him. He blows wherever he wills, but he accomplishes exactly what he wills to accomplish. The man went about his normal business. Most especially, Jesus highlights his sleeping and his rising. (laughs) That was it. That was it. As he waited for the seed to grow, all he had to do was live his life, go to sleep, wake up, and hit the repeat button. James takes up this very idea in James chapter 5, verses 7 to 8, when he speaks specifically to the people that he was teaching about the way in which they are to handle suffering in this world. But their suffering would come, just as it came in the book of Acts, their suffering would come most especially as they were faithful to sow the seed of the word. Everyone likes you as long as you don't root your life in Jesus. When you start rooting your life in Jesus, now all of a sudden, you've got some definitive things to say. You go around saying there is one and only one way to God. That's it, period, end of sentence you're going to get a little trouble every now and then. And so James, in James chapter 5, verses 7 to 8, he tells the people, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also, be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. He instructs them to be patient, which is to bear up underneath the weight of life. We're constantly bombarded with psychobabble that tells you that you are a product of everything that has happened to you. Certainly you are shaped by everything that has happened to you, but you don't have to let that affect you. You can decide in life if you want to be, if you want your life and your attitudes and your actions and your thoughts and your motives, if you want them to be determined by your circumstances, or if you want them to be determined by an unchanging God. If you determine that they will be rooted and grounded in an unchanging God, then it will give you the type of patience. And it will allow you to establish your heart in the way that James teaches you. We say rightly that Christianity is not a a religion of picking yourself up by the bootstraps. But in all honesty, sometimes it is. That doesn't mean that we negate personal effort. Personal effort to say, okay, self, get it together here. Jesus died for you. Jesus freed you from this sin that you are tempted to walk into right now. I have to control myself. I think that's a fruit of the Spirit. I have to control myself and I have to put on the new man that Jesus Christ has secured for me. And I have to then walk in that new man. And an aspect of that of the, is the action of patience. We patiently wait to see the effects of the word because we understand that we can't save a single person. But God can. And the way in which God saves every single person he saves is by the word of God. You know what one of the many things this does for us to encourage us and to give us confidence it lifts the weight that rests on our shoulders to say that the results are up to you. It relieves that burden, a burden that we rightly want. I mean, who among us who is not a genuine Christian here today, who among us has not pled through tears with someone to come to Christ? 
please, I'm begging you for the sake of your own soul, come to Jesus. And they just say, yeah, I'm good. I like to do things the way I want. I like my life, it's just fine. And your heart is so burdened for them because you know they're gonna go to hell if they don't repent. Who among us has not felt that weight? Yet at the very same time, and especially when we feel that weight, we need the truth to come in to be able to remind us, I sowed the seed, now it's time to sleep. Maybe there's some more sowing to be done later, but God will take care of the results. The power is not in the sower, the power is in the seed. It sprouts by itself, Jesus tells us. And so we must be persistent to preach the word, we must be patient to see the effects of the word, and then the third practice of the faithful sower is that we must rely on the power of the word. We must rely on the power of the word. Verse 28, the earth produces by itself. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. Just as the seed automatically grew, grew by itself, so the word of God will do the very same thing. We can't make anyone believe, just like the sower can't make the ground do what it's supposed to do, designed by God to do. But we can rest in the reality that just as the ground will do what God designed it to do, the word of God will do what he designed it to do. Listen to what the Bible has to say about itself in various places. Isaiah 55, verses 10 to 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The word will do what God wills it to do. And I would point out to you as well that God doesn't say the word that goes out from your Bible. God doesn't say the word that goes out from your mouth. God says the word that goes out from his mouth. Reminding us that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 17. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God will be complete, equipped for every good work. The Bible will do what God says it will do, and it will make you, dear Christian, who God says you must be. James 1, 17 to 18, James says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. James is speaking there of how someone is born again to new life in Jesus Christ. It happens by the will of God and the word of God. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. If you are a Christian, you didn't become a Christian because you suddenly wised up one day. You became a Christian because God turned the light on for you. You were in the darkness, dead in your sin. And God said, let there be life and let there be light. And the Holy Spirit removed the scales from your eyes and you rightly saw Jesus Christ and you haven't stopped looking ever since. First Peter tells us the very same thing. First Peter 1, 22 to 25, 
having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. The kingdom of God will grow by the word of God and by the will of God. God will make sure of it. And this points us then back to the idea of being persistent to preach the word, doesn't it? If this is the reality of the power that is inherent in the word of God and not in our witness, then what I must do is continually point people back to the word of God. When I can't figure out how to convince them of something, all I have to do is say, this is what God says. That does not give us an excuse for unprepared or ill-equipped evangelism, but the reality is, we all know it, you will be asked questions that you don't know the answer to. You will be faced with dilemmas that you don't know how to solve. But God doesn't sweat one drop at any of that. He simply sends out his word from his mouth, and it will do everything he accomplishes, or he wills to accomplish with it. And so this creates in us a deep and profound confidence. All I have to do is preach the word. That's it. That's all I have to do. God has put me here simply to be a sower who sows and sleeps and trusts him. So we rely on the power of the word and then the fourth practice of, a faithful, of the faithful sower is that we must remember the promise of the Lord. We must remember the promise of the Lord. First of all, verse 29 promises that there will be a harvest one day. When the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. There will be a time when the Lord Jesus returns. There will be a time where we are gathered together to meet him in the air. There will be a time where the saints will reign with him forever. It is coming. And so as you are tempted to be discouraged, as you look around at all the things there are to worry about in the world, you lift your eyes up to the coming king. And you remember, the Lord will gather the harvest one day. And I will be a part of that harvest. And I will enjoy it forever with my brothers and sisters and with my God. So we remember the promise that there will be a final harvest and we remember in verses 30 to 32 the promise that the kingdom will grow. It will grow. It will grow by the word of God. Not by the extraordinarily brilliant tactics of the church. Not by us figuring out the secret discipleship model and principle. Not by us figuring out a good algorithm to combat the algorithms of Instagram and Facebook that fill your mind with all kinds of nonsense. Seriously, look it up. It will grow by the word of God. All the way to the point where we read again in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's where it will grow. From small beginnings to glorious endings, this is the kingdom of God. We've seen then that the two lessons for the faithful sower are that the kingdom of God will grow automatically and the kingdom of God will grow exponentially. 
We've seen that the four practices of the faithful sower are that we must be persistent to preach the word. We must be patient to see the effects of the word. We must rely on the power of the word and we must remember the promise of the Lord. It turns out great things really do have small beginnings. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, what a glorious word you have given to us. What glorious promises you have given. What a glorious comfort it is to us to know that your kingdom will grow exactly how you intend it to grow. That while we are tempted to be shaken by the winds of change and the winds of the world, you are not. Nothing throws you off of your plan. Nothing gets you worried. Nothing interrupts what you have determined to do. Nothing outsovereigns your sovereignty. You are the King of glory. You are the King of kings. You are the God of time and space and everything in between. And so we pray, O oh God, that you would allow us and help us by the power of your Spirit to rest in the truth of the gospel and to proclaim the truth of the gospel. And then to sleep in perfect peace as we trust you to do what you say you will do. We know you're not a liar. We pray that you would forgive us for the times we worry. We know at the very same time that the same burdens we have, even burdens for our loved ones and our friends and family members who we so desperately want to see embrace the truth of the gospel, we know that you bear those same burdens. And so we cast them on you, God. We trust that you will do what you say you do. We trust that your kingdom will grow by your word and by your will. And we rejoice to see the day when we will be gathered with the innumerable multitude declaring to you and to all of your creation that salvation belongs to the one who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.